one of my most special memories of when I was growing up here in Bournemouth in the UK is the relationship that I had with my dog, Rusty. I swear to you, Rusty was sent to me to teach me about animal behavior. He wasn't even our dog. He lived in a hotel around the corner. And I met him because I was taking out a dog for a lady who owned a sweet shop. And when I was taking him for walks, this little black mutt started joining in. I paid him little attention. Well, I was trying to teach Buds a few little simple tricks like shake hands. So again and again, I would say, give me a paw, shake hands, take his paw, praise him and give him a reward. But he couldn't learn to raise his paw. And one day when for the umpteenth time I was talking to Buds, a little black paw came out. And it was from Rusty. And from that moment, I realized this dog is special. I haven't taught him, but he's learned. He's the only dog I've ever known who, if he did something and you reprimanded him, but he hadn't been taught that it was bad, he walked over to the wall. He sat down, staring at the wall with his nose almost touching it. And until I went down on my knees, put my arms around him and apologized, he would not move from that position. When the professors in Cambridge told me that animals didn't have personalities, minds or emotions, Rusty had taught me, of course, we're not the only beings with personality, mind and feeling. And I owe so much to that teacher in my childhood, Rusty. And if Rusty hadn't sadly died, I wouldn't have gone to Africa. I could not have betrayed that amazing bond that we had, but he freed me to go to Africa. I can and I will make a difference in this chaotic world. I believe that we can all make a difference. I have so much hope. Can nature bounce back? We can make this planet a better place for ourselves and the future generations. I aspire to change the world too because of the hope she gave me. She devoted her life to this. Together we can, together we will. What is your greatest reason for hope? I'm Jane Goodall and this is the Hopecast. Today, we're talking to a very old friend of mine. I've known Azadine Downs for decades. He is the president and CEO of the International Fund for Animal Welfare, or IFOR, as it's known, where he works to protect animals across the globe every day. A big job, to say the least. We have the most fascinating chat about everything from myths about the medicinal properties of certain animal parts to the absolute necessity of having hope, to why it's of utmost importance that we change the face of conservation. I hope you enjoy this hopeful conversation with Azadine Downs. You're a fighter like me, and I wish there was another word because fighting is associated with aggression, but I'm using fighting in a different sense. Like, you know, you're a fighter, I'm a fighter. We're not going to let the evil forces, we're not going to let them win. We're going to put on our armor and we're going to 
in a very gentle and very quiet and very sharing of information and laying out the facts, that's the way to move forward. And don't you agree, telling stories? Yes. I say this all the time to my scientist friends that they say, why don't you just give them the disk with the, with the data and then they'll just agree with you. I was like, but you have to have a relationship. You have to spend the time. And I, I find that being hopeful is disarming to many people who are not. They can't imagine, given all that goes on, how can you remain hopeful? And it's not because we're pie-in-the-sky optimists. No. It's that you have to believe it. You have to believe in hope for a better world. I know people ask you, and, and they've asked me, how do you remain hopeful? How do you remain positive? And the one thing that I say is that I'm not willing to simply manage the demise of the planet. I'm not willing to say we're lost and, and the world is coming to an end and it's a hundred years or a thousand years. I'm not going to manage the demise of the planet and everything that lives in it. And I believe that if you don't have hope, uh, you can't get through your day. One thing in our favor as a dean, the silver lining of this pandemic which, you know, it's caused horrible suffering and death and economic chaos. I mean, it's a kind of nightmare, but people are beginning to realize we brought it on ourselves by our disrespect of nature and animals. And as we invade wild animals' territory and destroy their environment, and they get forced to come into closer contact with us, and then we hunt them, kill them, eat them, traffic them, sell them in these wildlife markets and the bushmeat markets, We've created HIV AIDS, we've created Ebola, we've created uh, SARS and now COVID-19. And it's our fault that these things have happened. And if scientists who study these zoonotic diseases predict it's only going to get worse. And we cannot be let off because our factory farms, they've caused many zoonotic diseases. You know what the number one Google search was when the pandemic broke and people began talking about COVID-19? Pangolins. What is a pangolin? The most heavily trafficked animal in the world. That was it thought that maybe the pangolin was the animal that allowed a pathogen from it, a virus, to jump to a person. But they still haven't proved that it is a pangolin. But Hazardine, with this pangolin thing, pangolins are now on the number one list in China and you're prosecuted if you hunt them or sell them. They seize shipments of scales, which Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine, and in Vietnam, say is, is medicinal, which is, you know, just like rhino horn. That's why environmental education should be part of every, every single school curriculum. As a dean, can we possibly tie up donkeys with the possibility of a new zoonotic disease? Because that might be the only way to save them. You know, they're nearly extinct in Kenya. We have our Roots and Shoots has a wonderful program going around to the families who own the donkeys and giving them education. But it's the young people who do it. It's the Roots and Shoots members. And they go to each family and tell them, you know, you'll get more out of your donkey if you treat it well. But the story that I love best is uh, one man decided he'd join this campaign. So he went round to the families with donkeys. And he talked to the man of the family and he said, 
If you treat your donkey well, it will do more work and your wife will have less work to do and she'll be better in bed. (laughs) 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 The human mind and the imagination, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, well, you you know, years and years ago, when I first lived in Fez in Morocco, I lived in an old palace. And downstairs, it had one of these huge doorways to the entrance to, to the palace. And there was a man who was in his 80s who had a very young wife, four children in a tiny little room. And he was a porter and he had a donkey. And he brought the donkey into the house every night. And so I thought, innocently, um, he must have a great relationship with this, with this donkey. And so I asked him one day, what's the donkey's name? He could not understand what I was saying. He kept saying, it's a donkey. I said, no, I know, but you spend every day of your life with this donkey. She must have a name. And he, he just kept saying, no, no, she's a donkey, you know, lovingly. But, you know, for me, I'm thinking, well, come on, she must have a name. But just think, Hazardine, as recently as 1962, I was told in Cambridge when I got there, having not been to college before, to do my PhD, that I shouldn't have given the chimpanzees names. They should have numbers. And I couldn't talk about their personality, their mind or their emotions, because those and this, this is what the scientists said, were unique to us. And I was actually told there was a difference between us and all the other animals of kind, because the chimps are so like us biologically. And then Hugo came and took film of their behavior, like tool using, kissing, embracing. And there was all the detailed observations Science had to admit that we're not the only beings, personality, mind, and emotion. As, as you know, people can now, students can study all those things. You know, I've, I've always been so curious about that. Even friends that I have who, you know, go out to the national parks and, and they follow grizzly, grizzly bears. And it's like, oh, I'm just so in love with 399. I'm thinking, but, you know, 399, the number becomes a name as well. I mean, what I'm going to be just as attached to 399 as I am to Sally. But, you know, one reason why people don't want to give names is the same in some zoos, because they want to recycle the animal. And if it has a name, it's harder to do. Oh, yeah. And if it's just an animal, just a bear, just a donkey, just a lion... So when did the the whole trophy hunting business uh, come up to the fore and boil over because the lion killed had a name? Cecil. That's right, yeah. But every other lion who doesn't have a name has just as much personality and right to live. When you look at the, the videos of those people who are involved in trophy hunting and they'll say things like, when I shot and killed this animal, I wept. It's like, if you wept, why did you do it? Yes, exactly. Where is the courage? The statistics are so alarming. Every report comes out, you know, a million species in danger of being lost. What I have seen, because people ask us all the time, well, you know, have you been able to continue to do your work during the pandemic? And we had the team really focus on those people who were on the front line. So uh, the rescue workers, people who were involved in rescue centers, and people who are supporting rangers. 
And the pandemic has caused a total loss of revenue for all of the national parks and from tourism. And, and that's true of the private conservancies too. The, the upside of it though, is that in a number of cases that, that we see in Zimbabwe uh, and in Kenya, the animals are reclaiming spaces that had been lost, perhaps because of the over overpopulation of the tourists. You know, there's a downside to it, obviously, with the loss of revenue. Um, but one of the things that that we put out there as a premise was nature will bounce back. Oh, it will. Oh, yes, if we let it. I I did a a talk like three days ago to the Wuhan. Natural History Museum. That museum is built on what was, or I suppose still is, the largest landfill in Asia. And it is now the largest green space in Asia. There are so many good news stories in China. It's amazing. I mean, the animals rescued from the brink of extinction, like the panda and the uh, crested ibis and the two-humped wild camel. And that was done by a tiny little group. And for the first time, they've got a Chinese group of Chinese scientists and Mongolian scientists working together across the boundary to protect the camels in the Gobi Desert and the Lopnor Desert. These are wonderful stories. Well, that's a really important point that I think has emerged. You know, we've talked a lot about transboundary and transnational issues and getting away from the political fights right? Of these are our elephants or our rhinos or our wildebeest. Uh, but they've always moved across these international borders. And again, with the loss of uh, so many people, uh, the animals are rediscovering some of their migration routes. And it's very, very enlightening for people to say, well, you know, we haven't lost. We haven't lost this species. And the downside, of course, is, you know, the, the lack of tourism, but there's also the lack of the trophy hunters. And what we see in our work is that conservancies that allow or promote trophy hunting are, are quiet because no one is there. And the animals are incredibly intelligent and they're thinking, you know what, this is now a safe place. And if there's an alternative to you know, kill them to save them. People are beginning to listen in new ways. It's like, you know what? We've lost all of the revenue. The hunters aren't coming. So what else is out there to offer us? And, you know, that, that's why I, I kind of focus on that, that notion of stop assigning an economic value to everything that moves. You know, there's intrinsic value. And, and I think more and more people are waking up to that. And also, don't you think, Azadine, we need a new definition of what success means as an individual. Isn't success when you have a good life? That's right. When you have enough money to support yourself and your family, yeah. to educate your children. That's what we should aim for. And that yeah. should be enough. Somehow there's something in us that always wants to get more and more and more. That's what we may be being able to fight better after COVID-19.
when I said that we need a new definition of success, wasn't it the king of Bhutan who has the happiness index? There was a study done and they took, I think it was six immigrant families, and they came in with exactly the same, like it was a husband, wife, and child, and they had nothing. And then they followed that, the, them for about 10 years, I think. And so in all six cases, they managed to get a job. In all six cases, they managed to get their children to a school. In all six cases, they managed to get somewhere to live. And at that point, two of the, two of the six stopped. They said, you know, we've got our children at school. They've got a good education. We've got a nice house. Um, we've got enough food. And the happiness index, which had risen for everybody as they rose to this place, stayed the same. Maybe, maybe for these people it went up. But the others, they went on wanting more, wanting more, wanting more. And they got more and more and more. But at the same time, the happiness index went down. And I love that story because this is what's gone wrong with the planet. This is what's wrong with the world. It's wrong with us. I see more places setting land aside. Uh, you know, you mentioned Bhutan and, and we work in Bhutan. An extraordinary devotion to nature where they had set aside 70% of the country for forested land. And as you know, when you fly over and you see Bhutan versus Nepal, which can be denuded, it's extraordinary. So it's just another example of, of people waking up that burning down our home is basically killing ourselves. Saving, saving an animal is saving ourselves. Saving their home is saving our own home. The notion that development, even though it includes all of these things about health and gender and inclusion, that there's an assumption that development will always lead to a healthier life and all of the things that you've just mentioned. But I'm really not sure that it does. And could we change that definition to sustainable health? You know, development will come from it, but that's the priority if people and the planet is healthy, good things will flow. Development will not necessarily produce a better world. No, of course it would. And, and you know, to have another shopping mall and another road and another dam and destroy another environment, that is destroying our children's future. And that's what people are beginning to understand. I really do think they are. You look at, again, a catastrophe like the fires in Australia. Yeah. The number of people who rushed into a burning forest and ripped off their own shirts to pick up a koala yeah. and run out, at risking their own lives, that is not something we've seen you know, in the last 10, 20 years. But now you see it more and more. And it's because... Humans are now facing catastrophes, climate change and things like that, that they haven't perhaps been really aware of, but they see it now staring them in the face and they're taking action. So I think that does give us hope that people who perhaps were not aware, like we were saying, what, what is a pangolin? Well, now everyone who looked it up is saying, listen, let's save that pangolin. But you know, Azadine, when you said all these people in Australia rushed and risked their lives and took off their shirts to save an animal, 
I think that's been going on, but because the fires were such a, a, a newsworthy uh, situation, the people who did that got into the news, whereas the people who've been doing it for so long, risking their lives to help animals, it hasn't made the news. You know how they say in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. And every time I get a news conference, I always say, you know, you guys, you need to give more space to the good news stories. Yes, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Yes, and you do need to share it. Yes, we do need to know. Yes, you need to educate people. But because you and I have both traveled around the world all to all these places, we've seen the good news stories. We've seen places, um, you know, reclaimed places that we destroyed that now support nature. We've met people who've worked on these projects. We've seen the greening of cities. We've seen all this, but it doesn't get its proper share of media attention. And there's so many things we can do as individuals. I think one reason people give up hope is because they look at the whole situation around the globe and they feel helpless and hopeless. I mean, it's grim. They read the news. They they look at the newspapers. Uh, they check the internet, and everything is doom and gloom, doom and gloom, doom and gloom. You know, we're losing this, and lots of scientists saying we've reached the point of no return, and there's nothing we can do that will change the climate change crisis, and soon the globe will be uninhabitable. Okay, so when they read that, of course they give up hope, don't they? But What's the antidote to that? The antidote to that, I think, is just helping everybody to understand that every day you live, you make an impact on the planet and you get to choose what sort of impact you make. And you can make a difference. You can use consumer pressure to change the way that big corporations work by refusing to buy food or clothing that's made in an an unethical way. And once people get involved in hands-on stuff, and that's why Roots and Shoots is working so well, they get a different attitude. And hope springs back, like, yes, we can. The cumulative effect of billions of ethical choices every day, thinking about the future of your children and theirs, and not just about what I gain out of this today. That's the key. That's what we have to push that's what my mission is, and I think it's yours too. No, it absolutely is. And, and I, for me, it gets to the issue of respecting people and listening to them and not imposing. I just don't believe in, in protesting every single thing that you see. Offer something. Offer something. What am I for? There's lots of things we can be against, but what are you for? And if you sit quietly and think about what you're for, as opposed to all of the things in the world that you might be against. You don't like. (laughs) Yeah, you find a way forward. You'll find a path for yourself. I'm curious. I've got my four reasons for hope, and I think you know them. And, you know, one of them is the the way that the young people are rising up to, to tackle these problems in a very sophisticated adult way. Once they know know what the problems are, and we they get educated and we empower them to take action. Then secondly, the resilience of nature, which we've talked about. And thirdly, this brain of ours, which, you know, yours is more exposed than mine. Um, (laughs) 
I didn't pull my hair out. It decided to leave me. Yours is perfectly exposed. Perfect <laughs> example of this wonderful intellect. It's shining <laughs> from your head. And then finally, and I think maybe this is the most important, this indomitable spirit. If there were not people out there who just tackle what seems impossible and don't give in, I mean, they're the leaders, they're the, you know, they inspire people. And so often they succeed. And if they don't succeed, they've inspired so many people that the cause will be taken on. And in the end, it will win. I mean, like, you know, Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and people like that. When I talk about changing the face of conservation, there's a number of things that, that I focus on. One is including more women in the conservation conversation. And if you look around uh, the world, and you know because you know, you're invited to speak in so many different fora, and what I, what I find oftentimes is that the number of African women who were on the stage with me is so low. And at the same time, I'm thinking it's the women who are doing so much of the work to take care of children or to collect firewood or to be in the forest or to be uh, going to the river. Um, they know what it is to have to interact with wildlife, many of whom are, are dangerous. And so both on a professional level, when I say changing the face of conservation, it's, it's to get away from this notion that it's, it's something that's imposed uh, from the West. No, it's not true at all. It's absolutely, totally, completely not true. And we too, as you know, as a dean, we, we've been working since 94 to give girls scholarships, to keep them in school beyond puberty, to give them a chance of secondary education. And it's, it's just made such a difference. And I think it is probably the future of conservation. But you know, what I love is a tribe in Latin America and I was talking to the chief, I don't remember even which country, I think it was Peru. And he said, we think of our tribe as like an eagle. One wing is male, and the other wing is female. And only when the two wings are equal, can we fly high. I think that is just such a lovely vision of where we should be going. Because, you know, thinking about women moving into politics and previously male-dominated, um, you know, areas of business and, and so on. Women and men are different, and we have different, I don't know what to call them, skills, different way of looking at the world. I was lucky because Louis Leakey took me on to study the chimps because he wanted a woman. He thought women might have more patience, might have more empathy with the animals. So the future is a combination of education, understanding, and understanding meaning that we understand the importance of the environment. We understand 
the need for a good relationship with it. We understand that animals are sentient beings. We understand that this continual consumption of natural resources can't go on because already we've overconsumed and nature can't keep up and our populations are growing and our livestock is growing. It's got to change and it needs the uh, characteristics of men and women together. And if you are patient and you don't come with a pre-packaged plan in your back pocket and you spend time with the community and speak with people who haven't been given a voice previously, you will learn so many things that you had no idea was going on. Well, as a dean, with these new hope casts, which hopefully will bring hope to people around the world, I would just want to thank you for agreeing to be one of the people on these Hopecasts because oh, it's been hopefully for people informative, hopefully for people inspiring, hopefully for you and me it's also been fun and reaffirming a deep friendship. And thank you, Jane, for having me. It's my honor to be with you and you give me hope. And I, I think of you all the time and that's what keeps me optimistic. So thanks for having me. You give me hope too. Pendolins happen to be the most trafficked animals in the world. We have them at Gombe. I've seen a lion playing, patting around a pangolin ball. I was taught about them by Louis Leakey in 1957 when I first went to Africa and onto the Serengeti. And he said, Jane, whatever you do, if you meet a pangolin, don't get your fingers between the tail and the body scales because they make wiggling movements and you'll lose all your fingers before you can say Jack Robinson. <laughs> but unfortunately, that does not protect them from the poaching and the hunting because of the mistaken belief that their scales can provide some kind of protection. But also pangolin meat is eaten as a delicacy in many parts of Asia. So these poor pangolins, they're so enchanting. They're just so worth saving. Feel hopeful and inspired to act with the Jane Goodall Hopecast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and anywhere podcasts are found. I'm your host, Jane Goodall. The Jane Goodall Hopecast is produced by the Jane Goodall Institute. Our production partner is Frequency Media. Michelle Corey is our executive producer, Inar Gaukusha is our producer, and Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Our music is composed and performed by Ruth Mendelssohn with additional violin tracks from Angie Shear. Sound design and music composition for the Conservation Chorus is by Matthew Ernest Filler.
Follow Dr. Jane Goodall and the Jane Goodall Institute on social at facebook.com slash Jane Goodall and at Jane Goodall INST on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to share about the Hopecast tagging JGI and hashtag Hopecast for a chance to be featured. To learn more about Jane and JGI, visit janegoodall.org and support our work at janegoodall.org slash donate. The Hopecast is a movement of hope turned into action fueled by each of you. To become an official Hopecaster and support the podcast, visit janegoodall.org slash Hopecaster.